Welcome to Non-Obviousness with you, you Hanson. Yes, that's it. Thank you. So we are very fortunate today to have Patricia, Patricia A. Martone with us, uh, who has a fantastic experience um, on, from almost the beginning of time for patent lawyers. I mean, it's the, interesting enough, Pat and I basically started out at the same time. Um, and one of the things is when I was a uh, first year student at Georgetown, we had 150 in three different sections, and that was it. There were no small classes or anything else. There were three women in my class. By the time I graduated, I think it was 15 to 20 percent, and then shortly it really pumped up. And now, basically, every year there are more for, uh, women graduates or students in law school than men. But you were a pioneer uh, in an interesting time, and not only a pioneer in the law, but a pioneer in patent law, which is even like pioneer squared. Um, but let's start out first of all. Uh, where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, New York. And how long did you live in Brooklyn? For four years. And then what did you do? My family moved to Staten Island. Ah, and, and where in Staten Island? In Port Richmond, which is on the north shore of Staten Island. I, I was born in Staten Island uh, uh, and four years and moved out to Long Island. Uh, I, I don't remember those well, but it was, it was a nice almost suburban experience when I was there. I don't know about with regard to... It was know. almost a rural experience in some parts of Staten Island, not where I was, but but yes, it was very, you know, quiet, small town. It had maybe 250,000 residents in the whole borough, and uh, it was a very nice place to grow up. All right, so you were there through high school? Uh, yes. And then you went to college. Where did you go to college? I went to college at uh, Washington Square uh, at NYU. And how did you like that? Uh, it was it was a big change, but I I loved being in the city. And of course, it was it was the 1960s, and it was very tumultuous time towards the end of when I graduated, which was 1968. But um, I enjoyed the city. I you know, I studied uh, chemistry, but I also took a lot of liberal arts courses, particularly in history. So I, you know, I felt that I had a good education there. Yeah, well, NYU even then had a fantastic reputation. Actually, I got accepted to NYU and Georgetown, and I knew NYU was probably a better school, but I had these ideas that maybe wanted to do something with government, and if I was in Washington, it might help. And actually, it was in that regard. And I also thought Georgetown was a great experience. So we both enjoyed our law school experiences. And then your first job was what? I went to college. Oh. Then I went to graduate school for a year. Then I worked for a year. Then I went to law school. Okay. Where did you go to graduate school? At Johns Hopkins. Oh. And what were you doing at Johns Hopkins? Uh, studying uh, physical chemistry. Oh. And then you decided enough of all this technical stuff. I'm going to be a lawyer. Right. And then where did you go to law school? I went to NYU. Okay. And how was that experience? Yeah. Well, I, 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 loved, uh, I loved every minute of it, actually. I really felt like I had found, you know, the right profession. 
and uh, it took a while to uh, convert from being a scientist to being a lawyer, but after a few months, I think I got into it. I have found, actually, that one of the problems, and obviously you, you've never had this, but one of the problems with strong science background going into the law is they tend to look at doctrine like the law of gravity, and you can't question the law of gravity. It's just the law you apply. Right. When I, and I'm a legal realist, so I'm actually on the other thing is that basically you're all time not paying that much attention to the doctrine as opposed to the facts and other stuff. Um, but you seem not to have ever fallen into that trap. Uh, and, and so how, well, tell us a bit. I know you had this very much a background where you found mentors very important. And how do you get a mentor then? Was it just natural? They just showed up for everybody? Or you had to seek them out? Or how did it happen? My first you know, legal job out of law school was at Kelly Dry at Warren, where I was uh, assigned to the litigation department. Uh, the real mentors, I think, came when I went to Fish and Eve a few years later. And I think that some, um, some people are just naturally good at mentoring. Now there are all kinds of different uh, you know, programs to promote mentoring in law firms uh, and, and starts in law school. And mentoring is important, but I think that you find someone for a young lawyer at that time, you found someone that you like to work with and they like to work with you and uh, you learn from them. So someone coming out just for people who are listening to this who are now law students, uh, you would say mentoring is, mentoring is still very important. And what could they do going into a law firm uh, to help make that happen? Is it subtle? Is it you go speak to someone, or what, what are you doing? Well, I think it depends on the organization of the firm. But, for example, when I was a partner at Ropes & Gray, which was very serious about mentoring and other things, is that there was a central person who assigned, uh, student, who assigned associates to cases and when you needed an associate on a case, you could talk to them, and they would tell you sometimes that a particular uh, associate asked to work with you or wanted to work on a particular subject matter that was like yours. I mean, I think there's multiple kinds of mentoring, which has been uh, described in, in recent years. I think the first is, and foremost, is actually working with someone and giving them work to do. Uh, others are just being a sounding board. I mean, these days, I think in law firms, there are programs where you can become uh, associated with a particular partner who will who will offer you advice. Uh, I, I think there are just a lot of different ways to do it, but I think it's always good to be proactive and not wait for someone to, to do this. When, and, and when I started, uh, in the 1970s, basically, there wasn't very much, uh, young lawyers couldn't really be so proactive. We kind of waited for people to were asked to work with us. But I think nowadays people have to be proactive, but there's a lot of training going on. I just went to a New York State uh, Bar Association program about 
mentoring, you know, from a diversity perspective and how to bring uh, different people along. And I, th I think I've always said that as a partner, when you want to assign someone to work on a case and you feel that you're going to get client pushback because, for example, the person may not be experienced enough, you have to advocate to the clients and explain to them why it's good for them that this person is working on this case. And I, I think that that's very important that we manage the relationships with our clients so they understand not that we're doing a favor to someone, but this person is really good and should be working on their case and will do a good job. And I have to say every time I did that, it worked out because the lawyer did do a good job. Yeah. Um, okay, so when we went into law firms, um, it was basically lockstep to a large extent of where your office was, what you paid, and even partners were this step and this step. Uh, everyone just dealt with the law. You didn't have to worry about getting clients. There were some rainmakers, but institutional clients and law firms have been together for years. So one was able, I, for instance, I was taking along to watch depositions, or I would hold yeah. the documents or something. Uh, today, the economics are such that th there's almost an incentive to keep the young lawyers in the office producing something or other rather than going out, or am I wrong? Uh, I think, unfortunately, that's true because cl some clients are particularly adverse to working with associates now. But, but basically, I think that, once again, um, you know, you can't bill for all the training that you do. I mean, that should be built into this in, into law firm economics because otherwise, in ten or twenty years, we're not going to have very many good lawyers. Mm. Uh, the pool is is decreasing uh, if we don't train our associates. Well, I think one of the things is associates are pricing themselves out of good, ex well, not pricing themselves out. Someone else is doing this. Starting salaries are such that it makes it more difficult to use them as a, and bring them along. And it's, it's almost like you have to have them producing immediately to justify their high salaries. So the high salaries sound good, but it may actually be reducing the, the quality of the experience the associate's getting. Well, actually, I don't think it's their salary that's the problem. I think it's, it's the combination of the billing rate and the push in firms to bill every second that anyone works. And I think that you really realistically can't do that and train people adequately. Okay. All right. Um, patent law. We're going to go back, actually, if we have time, I'm hopefully yeah. your experience in the beginning. By the way, we are with this, we're going to put a link to Pat's great article, Reflections on One Woman's Legal Career and the Critical Role of Mentors in the NYIPLA Bulletin. Uh, so you'll be able to read this thing for yourself, and I think it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, she also has written an article um, on the decline of the patent system, which is in the Mitchell and Hamlin and uh, Law Review, and we'll put the link to that as well. Um, okay, so patent law. What are the differences in doing patent law in a firm as opposed to every other 
aspect, if there are? Uh, I think that uh, that it's much like any very complex piece of litigation. I personally think it's important to have lawyers on a case with a technical background. Not everyone agrees with me. But I think that while in every type of case there's a particular approach that, that works well for patent cases, for any complex case, you need to break it down and make it as simple as possible. And so I think in that sense, it's not different from other very complex uh, litigation. Uh, interestingly, you know, when I was at Fish and Eve, which was a specialty firm and that it specialized in intellectual property. An IP boutique, as Yes. I did a lot of trademark uh, litigation and, and some copyright litigation, particularly the NBA versus Motorola case. I did not limit myself to patents. Didn't really see any difference in trying those types of, of cases. I do think the, that there is a substantive body of patent law that people really need to know. And I think that's not always true that they know it based on what I've seen. And, uh, and secondly, you, you, unless you have very a lot of expensive experts, you really do need to have at least some lawyers on the case be either have a technical background or be very fluent in in uh, understanding technology. Well, I know litigators who say, I couldn't litigate anything. Uh, litigation is litigation, has certain skills, what you have to do, how you have to present this or this. Uh, is that equally true in uh, patents? Well, I know that people say that. I, I, I'm a little skeptical about that. I think that they would then say that I could rely on experts. But experts are expensive. I mean, you, you, you have to, I mean, experts cost as much as lawyers do. And the pressure from clients to have a very streamlined case does, uh, and charge as little as possible makes it difficult to use experts in that role, I believe. So if you had a choice between regular lawyers being on the case and lawyers knowing patents, but when it comes to discussing the thing with the jury, you have the regular lawyers do it. Maybe when you have the examination on a trial of an expert or others, you have the lawyers with the knowledge. Is it necessary to do that? I mean, one, one thing, and a number of people said that, including Chief Justice, Chief Judge of the Court of Appeal of the Federal Circuit, is uh, people with strong technical background have trouble bringing it down to the level of the regular person in the street. And that's very important, obviously, in litigation, and it is important. Um, so how do you have a mix? I mean, I constantly tell students, or even when I'm out, everyone use acronyms, this, 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 the short, shorthand. Uh, and the more you know, the more you're going to have three words mean a paragraph, which is a disaster if you're trying to influence a judge who doesn't know it or a jury doesn't right. know it. So the, just the whole idea is you have to go back Square one, how did you actually learn this? And then what do you have to tell these people to actually get them to understand it is, is always important, but particularly important in cases with technology, wouldn't you think? Well, it is, but you know, at Fish and Eve, we were trained to be trial lawyers as well as patent lawyers. And it's possible to be trained as both 
and uh, and it was drummed into us from uh, when we were first, you know, junior associates that uh, we needed to learn how to explain technology in a simple way. Nowadays, we would. I mean, uh, that that also affects your choice of an expert. You know, some 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 experts are a lot better explaining things simply than other experts are. And uh, of course, now we do jury research and even research and hire jury consultants uh, for even cases not before a jury. As you try to work and work it so that you get the technical issues down in a very simple way that you can explain them. I believe the same person can be both. Uh, if you don't have this same person who can be both, then you do need two people. And I think the trial experts, trial expertise is hard to come by these days, which is creating a bigger role for more general trial lawyers because they probably have more trial experience. All right, so what exactly, uh, you were with uh, two or three law firms. Right. Very good law firms. Uh, and now you're uh, on your own, I right. guess. And what, do you, what exactly are you doing now in terms of, of being a lawyer? Okay. Well, m most of my work since I've been doing this for six years um, has been sometimes I am a second pair of eyes in a litigation. I'm not on the papers, but I review papers and make you know, suggestions. Uh, I've done some negotiations of, of uh, patent sales and agreements. Um, I don't want to go to court uh, at this stage of my career, but uh, basically I've done a lot of advice about uh, for claims, possible claims um, against the company, possible working up potential patent litigation, helping clients who don't have a... Um, an internal structure to support the IP of their company, develop one. I've done a lot of different things. I mean, right now, my focus really is moving more towards serving as an arbitrator in cases because I think that I've had a lot of litigation experience and I think I could be very helpful in simplifying disputes. All right, and how do you uh, get business as an arbitrator? Uh, well, that's a good question, which I'm still uh, learning about. But basically, first you need to be trained as an arbitrator. And how do you get trained? Trained. As an uh, one way is to is through the AAA, the American Arbitration Association. You have to apply to be part of a panel. Then you go to a training session that lasts for several days, and then you um, take yearly CLE courses, and you you know you promote your practice like you would promote any other practice. You can also do expedited, uh, smaller arbitrations to get started. I've done, I've also done some pro bono work for students, you know, serving as an arbitrator in student arbitration exercises. So it's, it's not that much different than starting another kind of practice, but you really have to be qualified. And so I'm on the AAA commercial panel of arbitrators, and I'm also on the AIPLA's list of arbitrators and mediators. All right, so the whole world, you should think about Pat. <laughs> now, is is this single arbitration? Is it three people? What which is it, or is it both? It's uh, well, it can be either, uh, but I think the general practice is more for complex cases is three independent arbitrators. All right, now you. 
I don't know that much about it, but uh, from little I know from the past, it, it used to be one side picks an arbitrator and the other side picks an arbitrator and those two people pick the third one. Is, is that still what happens? Uh, that sometimes, but um, I think that the trend now or, and what the AAA recommends is, is to have three independent uh, arbitrators. I guess both, in other words, the parties select them and not, and you don't have party arbitrators. You really have three independent arbitrators. All right, so you're, I'm, a, I'm out there as a litigator. Right. Uh, and I want to arbitrate. What do I get, 5,000 names and I pick one, or how does it work? Well, you go to uh, an organization like the AAA, and you can suggest names to them, or you can ask them to suggest names. But then the parties are given a relatively short list of potential arbitrators who are then asked if they have any conflicts, and then uh, they go into the selection process. And the arbitrator, to be, never really knows very much about this, except until they're... Um, asked about their specific conflict issues because it's done by staff to keep the arbitrators to be uh, neutral. Okay. Um, now, you find that actually people, especially, let's say, in patents, that there's a tendency for people to have a strong view about maybe the protection of patents or a view that more skeptical of protection of patents, and this is something you have to take into account when you pick an arbitrator. I suspect that parties will look at the backgrounds of arbitrators and what they've written uh, and spoken about, but um, I, th I, it's not clear to me that you'll you'll really ever figure that out because arbitrators have said that they're going to decide things uh, independently and uh, without bias. And I think people really mean that. So I think that what people are mo frequently looking for in arbitrators is uh, in the patent field, technical backgrounds. And that's true for patent license disputes where I think there's even more of a role for patents uh, for arbitration. I think they're looking at technical backgrounds, experience, including in arbitration and litigation. I think that's what they're principally looking at, but they will, I'm sure, read the writings of, of, of uh, arbitrators. Okay, be. so I'm out there and I have a controversy with another party. Uh, at what point do I say, yeah, we're going to litigate, or at what point do I say, no, maybe we arbitrate, is it? arbitration now more in the beginning, or is it because thinking about litigation doesn't seem to work? Uh, it depends on the agreement between the parties. Uh, this, the, the progress of arbitration is largely dominated by the, what the parties have agreed to. And so in an agreement, if there's a pre-existing agreement, uh, the parties may agree not to litigate and arbitrate instead. They may have agreed to arbitrate uh, in, before they do litigation, or they may have agreed to arbitrate certain issues and not other issues. So it really, first you would have to look at, at any existing agreement between the parties. If they have no agreement, then they get together and uh, that's then the process of the arbitration is something they go to an organization like AAA, 
and they say what they want to do. And part of the preliminary hearing with the parties is to flesh out a lot of these details that may not be in any agreement. Okay, so your advice to the outside world is arbitration is better if XYZ and litigation is better than XYZ, or is it, when should the people start? Now, obviously, if you have an agreement that already has arbitration in it, fine. Right. But I'm talking about a dispute, uh, and it may actually be no one agreed to it, but now both sides, I mean, one side thinks maybe we can arbitrate. Uh, how often should one side raise that earlier in a litigation, do you think? Well, first of all, in, in current district court litigation, mediation is required and uh, in different courts at different stages of the agreement, uh, of the, I should say, of the, of the litigation. So you may go to a mediation and the parties may, working with a mediator, which is sometimes, you know, a judge or an experienced um, a mediator, can decide that they want arbitration or maybe they want the preliminary evaluation of a neutral, which is different because it's not binding. I mean, all these things can be fashioned, but, but, but some kind of ADR is absolutely required in every litigation. Okay. All right. Now, you have said that having a global perspective is important to patent lawyers. What do you mean by that? Well, because I think that um, our clients, you know, have global perspectives. I, I, I've represented a lot of also companies from other countries, particularly in Japan and in Europe. But even our U.S. clients have, have a global perspective. So in terms of in terms of whether one should institute litigation, for example, I think it's important for our clients to look at the prospect of litigating somewhere other than the United States, given some of the problems in our system now. I think it's important to be able to work with our clients in structuring, perhaps filing in the United States and several other countries at the same time. I just think that um, the idea to look look at that is very important. The other, the other thing that I think is important is that in understanding litigation involving parties who are not located in the United States, it's, it's a good idea to understand sort of how their own system works because it, it, it affects their, their conduct in, in, in litigation and their ability to understand, particularly I can say with respect to working closely with Japanese clients, I, uh, where I was fortunate frequently to have either a Bengoshi who was, who was in a party part of, the, who was part of it to, you know, to bridge the cult, the legal cultures. What's a Bengoshi? It's a Japanese uh, litigating lawyer. Okay. And uh, in those cases, the clients, you know, were principally knowledgeable about Japanese law. So if you want to explain American law to them and they didn't understand you, it might be because there's some snag about Japanese law that's different and you don't know that. So it's, it's important to at least get some general understanding of that. And I just think the world is a global place these days and business is global. And uh, it's important to be on top of that.
Okay. Um, do you find that things which we accept as a, well, first of all, the United States is unique in the sense of the way our law developed. We got some the whole common law thing from yeah. Britain, but we then really expanded that to where almost a lot of our law is judge-made, and even today now, even though there's a statute, a lot of it is judge-made. That idea that the judges, almost, you know, if you think about almost every major doctrine, at least in trademarks or copyright, a lot of them were court-created. I can't speak to pens, but whereas the civil law systems, <coughs> the judge has a more minor role. Uh, do you think that it's true, and do you think that is somehow uh, a problem or has to be taken into account if you're going to be global with your litigation? Well, certainly the legal standards in different countries are different, and there is a big difference between the common law and the civil law. And that's part of the, the difficulty of global litigation is that you can't predict the same outcome in every country based on the same position because the law is different. Um, I would say that in my experience in, in, code, in, in code countries that... The code law, countries is civil law? law yes, okay. that, that they are in civil law countries that there is not the role of precedent that we, we have in the United States, and it causes the lawyers from those countries, when they read our cases, to look for some statement of the court and think that's like binding precedent, you know, for, for every case. And so um, that's why I think if you're doing global litigation, you need very good lawyers in each country, even if if the, if the client needs them and, and you want them because you want to be able to talk with them about how what's going on in your country is going to affect their country and vice versa. Okay. Um, what, what drew you into patent law as opposed to all of the other areas of law? Well, I, uh, I have a bachelor's and master's degree in chemistry. And uh, when I, uh, but uh, when I went to law school, I, I was not necessarily thinking about being a patent lawyer. I thought about trial work, actually thought about being a criminal lawyer for a time. But when I got out of, um, into the practice of law at Kelly Dry, after two or three years, I be began to realize that even in a general litigation practice that people start to specialize. And I thought I have the science background. I had worked at Fish and Eve in the summer when I was in law school and decided not to go there at the time because I wanted a broader experience. But I decided if it was time to specialize, then why don't I specialize in something where I really know about the science and in a firm that I like being at. And how did you go about then? You went to some sort of managing partner and said, you know what, if you have this type of case, I'd like to get involved. How did you do that? How did I transfer from one firm to another? No, within the firm, you said, I thought you said within a firm, you decided you wanted to specialize and start. No, I had to go to Fish and Eat, oh, then. I, I had to, to leave that oh, firm. Okay, okay, right. okay, okay, that explains right. it. But, um, uh, right now, Patent law in the United States is not as in the best shape it's ever been in. And this is true uh, and has an effect on actually how many patent lawyers will have 
so we have what? We have Mayo, we have Alice, we have other things. Is there any hope right now? All right, what is the state of play right now in the United States, in your view, in patent law, uh, in terms of case law? Well, I think 101 is a very big problem. Um, and I'd explain 101 to the Okay, audience. so that's patentable subject matter. And as a result of the cases that you mentioned, there has been uh, a great deal of difficulty and a lot of uh, decisions in validating patents on uh, medical diagnostics and uh, also in the technology field and computer technology. And I think that having reviewed the federal circuit decisions on computer technology, I think the federal circuit has figured out a way to get through this by, by looking at the relationship between uh, that, by finding a way to determine that, that more inventions are patentable and are not uh, within the uh, scope of, of Alice. I think it's a really big problem in the medical and biotech field. And um, because the Supreme Court refused, has really declined to take a number of important uh, decisions. Especially this in bank court of appeals decision that went up, whichever one, they were dying for them to take the yes. case and settle things. And they said, basically, we're washing our hands. We've screwed it up. It's, you guys have to solve right. it. Right, right. So that, that leaves us with the um, legislative route, uh, which is, you know, fraught with uh, difficulty. I think the, if I could step back, though, I think what the real problem is in the United States is that when I started practicing patent litigation, the clients that we represented at Fish and Eve, which were you know the stars of American, the leading American companies, respected the patent system. Sometimes they were plaintiffs and sometimes they were defendants, but they were not out to destroy the system because fundamentally patents were important to them in the protection of their business. That continues to be true for pharma and you know, biotech. However, the largest technology companies now, such as uh, Google and uh, Amazon, and, uh, and to a certain degree, Apple, but not as much because Apple actually enforces its patents. Companies like that have decided they don't like the patent system. They buy patents for defensive purposes, but basically it, they'd rather get rid of the cost of litigation then use their patents as what we used to call the picket fence model of using the patents to protect your, your main business. And so as a result, between the legislation that we had in, uh, to create the American Events Act uh, and the fight now over 101, which pits the technology companies against the pharma companies, we really do not have the same, we have a whole group of very powerful companies who don't need, really need the patent system and and would like to take it down as much as they can. And uh, will they be successful, continually be successful? Well, they're doing a pretty darn good job yeah. right now. I think that um, people, I think that there has been some more, I always think that patent law always seeks balance. I mean, you know, we've had the We've had some very strong periods of patent protection. We've had very weak periods of patent protection. I think that people understand that 
are beginning to understand that a lot of companies still do rely on their patents. And if we're going to have a patent system, we have to have one that protects that. But this, we can't have patent law that's only for one group of companies. It's supposed to be about innovation generally. And I think what the holdup is in Congress over 101 is the very well-financed lobbyists of, of technology versus pharma are out there duking it out. And, um, and that means it's going to be very difficult to resolve it, I think, legislatively. Yeah, I think basically what you have uh, is a techie community which has a view of technology as God, and anything that gets in the way of technology is a problem. And of course, IP gets in the way of the free use of the technology. Um, and that's fine when the, you know, techie startups don't care about IP and everything else, and everyone, oh, that's okay, and everything. It's like a commune in the 60s where people would share everything and farm and everything else, but they wouldn't go across and the farmer browns and milk his cow. What we have now is techie communes who actually want their rules to apply to everybody so they can go across and the farmer browns and milk his cow. And it's, it's a complete mindset that people have is they don't even understand the other side. If you take the Oracle case, I don't know if you're familiar with that. I've started to follow it. Yeah. Yeah. it it's a prime example of people on two sides, 22 amici briefs on, on Google's side and 30 on... Or they're in like different worlds. They're speaking about different things. There's, there's no connection. And it's, that's why that case is so important because what the Supreme Court does could really affect, and that's copyright, but also IP law in general. So if they affirm the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which I hope they do, I think uh, Kate O'Malley's opinion is very good, and a Solicitor General wants that. And even a Solicitor General now is seeking to argue on the side of Oracle. They think that's how important they think this is as, as a case. Um, but it, it's, it's not like somebody's bad and someone's good. It's just they don't understand the other side. It's like a religion. It's, it's like almost a secular religion, this technology group. And uh, it's very going to be difficult to change their mind on anything. And forget Congress. All you need is one person in the Senate raising hand. I don't agree to suspension of rules. So it really, to some extent, the federal circuit has to get up to the situation. But the problem, I think, and you can tell me differently, because I think... The federal circuit is fundamentally split now. You have people who actually are not are comfortable with Mayo and Alice, and then you have people um, who are, think it's think it's a disaster, and maybe they are not going to be able to do it. So, what's the solution? Uh, or one is just take all your stuff and go overseas, go to Asia, go to Japan, and take and really just do stuff over there. Well, I want to scroll back and say that I, I do think that Mayo and Alice have been interpreted too narrowly. I mean, I don't think the Supreme Court ever said that two-part test is the only test that could ever be used. Okay, I think if you read the opinion, it's actually a lot broader. 
but a lot of people have interpreted it. I think that, I think what happened is, as a non-patent legal realist is, Supreme Court left the Federal Circuit alone for 25 years or something. They, safe hands. And then all of a sudden we have biotech, we have software, maybe business method. There's no prior art, we're getting all these bad patents and it seemed, patent bar didn't seem to be looking for ways to solve it. And people screaming bad patents, bad patents. So then the Supreme Court looks to the Federal Circuit, but they split seven, six in and then back. So they have to say, okay, maybe we have to do something. So you, you, you have their the decision on an injunctions, uh, which makes, it used to be, you stayed out a, a, a case for the patent is valid and everything else, and you got an injunction. Now, all of a sudden, um, that is taken away at least for uh, non, uh, you know, not whatever it is is, and uh, and I think what they're saying this this was Thomas. Now the irony of this is Thomas is an originalist. The so he says actually, the judge can determine whether it's an injunction. I think they're saying backdoor the judge can determine whether it's a good patent, and that helps solve the problem. But the trouble with that is, and he's an originalist, and Scalia agreed with it. Is Article One, Section Eight, Clause Eight says exclusive right. You can't have an exclusive right if you can't get an injunction, uh, or it, you can't normally get an injunction. But that was not even raised. Normally, the originalists you do it. So you see, everything is ad hoc now. We got a problem and so, sort of solve it, and maybe then we don't solve it. So then you you talk about those decisions. Those decisions, I think the court thought were narrow. We're not overruling this. We're not overruling this. We're not overruling this. But some broad language by Breyer or others, other people are either misled or purposely are wanting to have it. And it's it's kind of a, I think now the Supreme Court says we started a fire and we can't put it out. And that's why they denied cert because we'll just cause, we'll just inflame more people. So it really is left to Congress or the Federal Circuit, and as we were just discussing, that may not be the best situation. Well, I think the Federal Circuit has found a way on the technology side. Okay. But, but I, I think that the, pro, the problem with the Federal Circuit, not in more recent years, but during the time particularly of Judge Rader and before that, that the Federal Circuit tends to want bright lines. And the Supreme Court hates bright lines. It, it says you should have a broad principle of law and apply the facts to it. And so there was a period of time when the, then the Supreme Court started to take more and more cases. But to compound the problem, a lot of these cases, you know, the Supreme Court can only decide the issue that's brought before them. And I know they can go broader and whatever, but they're kind of really busy now, right? And so what people brief and, and the issues that they present, the way the issue is framed is so critical to whether you're going to get cert, right? And, and whether you've got to give them something that they can decide, understanding this is a court that doesn't seem to like to do patent cases. It really doesn't. And several judges, I think, are really openly hostile to the whole concept of patents. 
So uh, I think that um, given the number of, of decisions that they've refused to uh, take on, I think that it's not going to come from the Supreme Court in the near term. I think lawyers could do a lot you know, better job of interpreting these cases more broadly. Another thing I've suggested, particularly to avoid getting a, an immediate dismissal on 101 grounds, is to focus on the importance of claim construction. And, and so making sure that, uh, that you have to go through the trial, uh, trial before at least the claim construction hearing before you get to uh, 101 issues. So I think that the best option is for lawyers to take as broad a reading of these cases as possible and to hope that some you know, sanity will prevail in the, in, the legis in the legislative end. But really, why do we need more legislation? I, I asked this question, why don't, why don't, if we go back to the original language of the statute and we say, and the original Supreme Court cases that say you can't patent the law of, of nature, uh, why do we really need any more than that? I, I, it's not clear to me that we really do. Well, we may not do, but we have people, well, as you said, we have, I think, people on different sides with agendas where what's important actually is not processed and it's not the law and it's not something else. It's, we're going to, you know, technology is going to prevail or pharma, it's not going to prevail or, um, and I, I, the simple thing like bright line rules makes sense for a court because the especially when the legislation is so weak, somebody has to be able to know whether they should do something. Right. So bright line rules for court-created doctrine it actually makes sense. If everything is ad hoc, and I'm a business person, I don't know whether I'm going to invest or not. So uh, I know some people who uh, basically invest and have been investing in patent development and innovation. And now they say they're going to Europe or Asia. Yes. Um, so it, I don't know, it's hard actually to be optimistic, isn't it? Or am I, am I wrong? Well, you said they've already solved this thing on, and so far. Yes, because, be, by, and I, I think they've, they've made that, uh, a lot better. I think that also if this, if the federal circuit concentrated more on, trying to come to agreement between themselves. I mean, part of the problem with the Alice decision was like the 13 decisions of, of in, individual appellate judges on the federal circuit. I mean, I, I think the federal circuit itself could get more, could work on being a little more harmonious and, and working these things out amongst themselves so different panels didn't produce different results. Yeah, I mean, it got so that they stopped announcing who the panel was a week ahead of time because people are then focusing on their arguments for that particular panel. Right. So, and uh, so I, everyone recognizes that there's an issue, but for whatever reason, they don't, I don't know whether it's personal animosity, I don't know if it's, we believe we're right and compromise is bad, or we have people who know pants and people who don't know pants. It used to be to some degree the CCPA, Court of Customs and Patent Appeals, well, it had, you know, some of our stars uh, uh, on it and then went on to the Federal Circuit in 1982. 
And there was this view, the Federal Circuit was created, even by liberals, Ted Kennedy and everyone else, is too many patents were being thrown out and patents were being destroyed by the various circuit courts. Um, and there was a general belief in, I think, patents, and it had to be stabilized. And now, I don't know if there's a general belief in anything in that court. Well, I think part of the issue, you know, is when you look at the backgrounds of the judges on the various courts of appeals, and I'm going to look at the period before President Trump began to appoint some people to the courts of appeals who had no, very little experience at all at, in trials. Most of the judges on other circuits have been district court judges. It's very, uh, there's other than Judge O'Malley, who on the, who on the federal circuit has been a district court judge. Yeah. And so um, I think it affects, while they were certainly all trained as lawyers, I think that affects the decision-making process because people feel that they're there, you know, to bring their personal expertise, you know, and background to decide the cases properly. But an appellate court traditionally does try to um, reach at least some um, common ground. I mean, imagine, what, what what would we do if the Supreme Court started issuing decisions with seven opinions? I mean, we would we, go crazy, right? I mean... Yeah, well, the you're right. The advantage of having mm -hmm. district court judges on a court of appeals is when they were in a district court, they wanted to be able to ascertain at least what the rules are. And uh, and in that sense, bright line rules were a good idea. But it, at least to have something which they could hang a hat on. Um, and the, the the federal circuit judges, almost none of them were even practicing law. A lot of them were just in committees and other other things. And so it, it became a, a reward to this senator or that senator or something else. And they get um, and. That may be okay if there are enough other people who have the background, but when they, you don't have enough other people who have the background, you have a court that doesn't seem to be grounded in almost anything. And, um, well, I'm almost going to cry now. It's getting, uh, yeah, I, I, maybe I think it's a little more bleak than you do, but uh, I hope that's something we, in the future. Uh, my, my view is just if everyone just follows Polly Newman, we'll be okay. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I have a more positive view because I still think there's role for good advocacy. And I think that um, and I think that um, that a lot that there are people in Congress who do want to do the right thing and don't want to get blocked, you know, by particular industry groups and but come out with a solution that seems fair to everyone. And I do believe, that legal systems seek balance, and I, I really do. And I, I think that we are having a better trend on certain one-on-one issues. And I think the PTAP situation is a little bit is a little bit better, but we have a long way to go. I think actually there's a lot of good intent in Congress, but I think the mechanisms which were basically created by Southern congressmen who were reelected. They're basically plantation owners and everything, and year after year they're elected. So all the senior people in Congress were from the South, and they created rules which protected the South from messing around with either slavery or 
uh, Jim Crow laws, or actually they're, they are not commercial, and rather that they could block tariffs, which are going to hurt the sales or other stuff. Um, so they created a mechanism, and now the Senate has something where one person just says, I object, can hold up things. And any law that comes onto the floor, they have to have unanimous consent that the rules which say you can debate for a week or weeks can be restricted to two or three things. There's so many mechanisms created so the minority could stop legislation they don't want. That, and now, like, American Vent Acts, that wasn't ready to go out. We did it every year at the Fordham Conference, and it not ready, not ready, not ready. That came out, surprised everybody, uh, because Congress was being criticized of not being worried about the economy, and not, this is a while back, and not even being able, it was partisan, not being able to, so all of a sudden they, they pulled that out and passed it, and if you look at the press release and the, and the press conference, they treated it as a jobs right. law. You wouldn't even, they didn't even mention patents. So that was basically used, not because of patent policy or anything else. They took something that wasn't finished, but for another purpose. So I, one big thing they've done uh, wasn't even completely ready, uh, which they usually are, with the industry agrees on it uh, on both sides. So uh, I, I hope you're right that uh, I think Congress, even when it has good intent, it's difficult to get things through, uh, so I'm. I, I think what would be beneficial here. I think if Congress, I, I I'm not as familiar with the rules of the Senate as you are, but the um, I think what we're lacking in Congress these days for important legislation is hearings in which different people from different industries come in and testify. Now there have been hearings, at least on 101 in this committee, not not the full. Congress, but that's what was missing in the American Vents Act. There was no congressional testimony on that. There was no hearing of different sides and trying to figure out. You could have, I mean, some of that legislation uh, could have used some improvement. I mean, you could have still have had it and certainly made it, uh, made it better. But uh, what I think Congress needs to do is to actually hear from experts on both sides in all industries because just like you don't you don't want to harm any particular industry but you shouldn't harm other industries because of one industry and so something has to be done that is really industry neutral with respect to 101 and uh, that's uh, that's going to be hard but it could be done so in the meantime you're a lawyer for clients what is your, and let's say, let's say it's a pharma client, what do you tell that client about what to do with uh, a new invention they're thinking of? Just go about it normally and we'll do the best we can? Well, first of all, they should get patents and, you know, oh, yeah, and yeah. everywhere, right? But, uh, well, in terms of, depends on what type of pharma. Obviously, drugs are, don't have a 101 problem. Um, but, the um, I, I have to say that I have have some advised some clients, particularly clients not located in the United States, to not sue in the United States. That was a couple of years ago. I think I might be a little more bullish now, uh, and to sue in Europe. 
Uh, and I think that that is why I think that any major legislative initiative has to include litigation in Europe okay, on a faster you, track than... When you say Europe, of course, you have all the different countries. You can pick... Right. The, um, mm -hmm. um, how does a client pick what... I mean, I know in patents, most people like Germany because mm -hmm. you, you get an injunction early. You don't even get to whether it's right. a valid patent. Right. That's a separate proceeding. So they have bifurcation. Right. Uh, is that the advice you would give, that all things being equal, sue in Germany? Well, I think you would also sue, I think it's a, it's a balance. You want to sue in any major market where it's important, okay? So that means suing in more than Germany. However, you then have to look at the current state of affairs, which constantly keeps changing, as to where you're going to get to trial first. Because in my experience, even in the United States, between competing litigations, the uh, the case that gets a trial first drives settlement. Case, case what? That get, the case that gets to trial first drives settlement. Okay, if if the case is going to be settled, it will be that first case to trial that will most likely to provoke it, and who's ever got the upper hand in that litigation has the upper hand in settlement. So, uh, using that theory, would you, would you say Germany? Well, uh, currently I would say Germany, but it, I don't, you know, some people say the Netherlands because of, of the port that's there. I mean, I, I would, I would want to pick among, you know, several jurisdictions, understanding what the laws are about validity and in these countries. I mean, there are some patents, you know, that could, the counterparts that could sustain a validity attack better in some jurisdictions than others. But Germany is always, is always going to come out, if not at the top of the list, close to the top of the list. Yeah. Um, well, you certainly want to have a country where Whatever they decide, other judges in other countries are going to think twice before they rule differently than that. Uh, I, I'm not it, so sure about that, but yeah. Um, all right. Do you have any examples of that? About whether judges in one country are going to pay well, attention to Well, if I'm a judge in this country and it's, I'm the first, then I have, you know, whatever I do, people can say it's right or wrong. But if, uh, and you're talking about major jurisdiction, has already said, this is the result. If I'm going to go against that, I may be less inclined than if I, if there was no uh, precedent. In other words, I think... In among, the United States, that would be true. But among judges, I've found, because of the conference and everything, they, they know what everything is going on, and I yeah. think there's a, a feeling of, I don't know, more effect on one another on what they're doing or not. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, so, but you, your theory, let's say you would then sue in three major places at the same time? Oh, maybe f more than that. I would certainly consider, um, Germany. Uh, I would consider the United Kingdom. Uh, I'd consider the Netherlands. Uh, 
I would consider South Korea and or Japan. Uh, I mean, these were all, but usually, I think the, I think that probably somewhere between, one should think about somewhere between two to five jurisdictions to start out with. But I don't, the thing is that what you don't want to have is to bring four cases and then be sued in four other places that you didn't sue in. So if it's really a big case, you should take a preemptive strike and sue maybe in 10 places, uh, all the places to protect your business so that there is not a basis for you to be sued in other jurisdictions, because then it gets crazy. You know, you've brought five cases where you're the plaintiff, the other side's brought five cases where they're the plaintiff. So I think if you think there's a real risk of being sued somewhere, you also have to put that on the list. Okay. Uh, final thought is, uh, what are the challenges facing women today, and generally in 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 law, but specifically in uh, technical and patent litigation? Well, I think that the challenges facing women in technical and patent litigation are not that much different now from the ones that are being faced uh, in general litigation, and and there is still uh, because so many. Women, it used to be when I graduated with a degree in chemistry, most women did not have a hard science degree. You know, they tended towards biology. Now we have women electrical engineers and whatever. I don't think, I think that problem is behind us. But I recalled uh, in the article I wrote in 2011, I went to hear a group of judges from the, uh, from the appellate division, first department in New York, talk about. Where are the women pointing out how few cases before them women were lead counsel or um, had argued an appeal? I think at that time it was for 98 commercial cases, only 12 cases had women. I just went in February, in the, earlier this month, to a diversity um, program on becoming an ally with judges, again, from this time from the Southern District, the Supreme Court, and the First Department. There's been no real improvement over the course of time in terms of women arguing cases, important commercial cases. And I think that continues to be a problem. And I think it continues to be a problem about how people treat uh, or the, tra the, the opportunities and treatment of young uh, women who are mothers. I, I think that's still a challenge. All right, so how can you treat young women who are mothers better to alleviate this problem? Well, I think you first of all have to respect the fact if they are part-time and they have to leave at five o'clock, you have to let them leave at five o'clock and you can't create a crisis at 4.30 every day to stop them from leaving. And that may affect the type of cases that they have. So you put them on a case where you can accommodate that, where there are other lawyers on the case. And, you know, sometimes women uh, you know, want to do, like good lawyers, every, everywhere they want to do as much as they can. But you have to respect it and find the right work for them during that period. And don't assume that it has to be the worst work on a case. Uh, this, and um, I think otherwise people have to make more of an affirmative effort to get women uh, into the courtroom. And, and that, that obligation relies on lead counsel. Now, do you think 
Is part of this that some women don't want to be in a courtroom, or are you saying that women want to be in a courtroom and are being stopped from being in a courtroom? I, it's the latter. They want yeah. to be in the courtroom, and they're not being put there. Yeah, when I, when I was uh, coming out of law school and I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we had women uh, who were in there the same with me and baby crimes and everything else who were fantastic and successful, and then they went out and were successful in practice. Uh, now, I, I don't, maybe that's because that whole experience of trying cases all the time then makes it easier to continue to do that yeah. the rest of your life. But if you don't have that, it's, it's difficult. Um, so what, what about going into U.S. Attorney's Office or the DA's office or something earlier on? Would you advise some women to do that as a, a way to... That is, a, I mean, that's been a traditional way that men have, have used. I think particularly now because there are so few opportunities to argue uh, to go to trial now, I mean, that's generally true across all litigation, that uh, that would be a good, that would be a good opportunity. But still, even when they get to the law firm, somebody has to make sure that they get out in front of the judge. Okay. All right. Well, Pat, thank you very much. It's been fantastic. Uh, I think you have an amazing career, and you I recommend we're going to give the two sites to these two articles that I really think everyone should read. Uh, and so what is the future for Pat Martone in the law? I mean, you have your own firm. <coughs> um, are you going to expand the arbitration? Are you going to expand the uh, client contact? Are you going to, what are well, you going to? I think I'm going to do arbitration, and I'm also thinking about uh, writing a book, or maybe two different books, and that's what I, I think is next for me. Whoa, hold on. Give us a little preview. Okay. The first, well, the one book I would like to write is about creativity and the enormous creativity I have seen, you know, in the clients that I've worked with, and which fascinates me because I'm also interested in art, for example. And, and you see this, this creative spark in people. It comes out in different fields. It comes out in art and fashion and science and whatever. And just observing people's work and Venner's work and how they did what they did to me is a constant source of, of amazement. And that's one of the things I would like to write okay. about. Okay. What's the second? The second is really to work to write more about uh, my career path as as because I was the first to do some things, and I, I think that would be worthwhile. Yeah, I think it would be worthwhile as well. Uh, well, you've had an amazing career, and you have a lot to say that would be good for everyone. Uh, and a book certainly would be a way to do it. And, and also, mm -hmm. everybody should just tell everybody in the world that this podcast is crucial uh, in many ways, and they should all listen to it. But anyway, thanks, Pat, so much. Oh, thank great. you, you. It was really a pleasure to all be right. here.